Uh, I'm so happy to be in this chapter. And I say that genuinely. I, I have been, the more I studied 1 Kings 22, the more excited I got uh, because it presented a unique challenge. Uh, as we will see, as you will likely see as we go through, there's some particular verses that are quite confounding in this narrative. But the more I studied, the more excited I got. And I hope that you can kind of just glean some of that excitement as we go through. Because this passage, I think, is so profound in so many ways. But here, as we go through, uh, we're going to go through roughly the first 40 verses of this chapter. Uh, it, this particular narrative, the first 40 verses or so, brings to a close, finally, the saga of Ahab. We've been dealing with him for quite a while. We've been seeing all of the ways that he has plunged Israel into just very dastardly, depraved deeds. He's brought in more iniquity, more idolatry. He's uh, married Jezebel, and they have become this dynamic duo, sort of, of wickedness that has brought Baal and Asherah and other liturgies that are just so wicked and depraved into cultural and natural, or uh, national, excuse me, acceptance among the Israelites. He has every, at every turn almost, Ahab has seen fit to just ignore God, ignore the authority of Jehovah, and he has gone his own way. And that's sort of what is coming home to roost, if you will, if, to use that phrase, that idiom. This is what's coming home now in this chapter. Ahab's life, uh, entire life of going against the words of Yahweh. And you have here, once again, Yahweh himself inserting himself into the narrative of history, inserting himself into the moment to reaffirm, to remind everyone that is in the narrative that he, yes, is the only true authority. That's what I think you have going on here. So to begin, verse 1, it says, And they continued three years without war between Syria, or Aram, and Israel. And as you know, if you go back to chapter 20 in verse 34, this is that treaty that was enacted between Ahab and Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, had made those two different wars. Remember, you looked at that a couple weeks ago. He made two different wars on Israel, and both of them were pushed back because of God's almighty deliverance. And at the end of that narrative, we have Ben-Hadad and Ahab coming into covenant with one another. So it's now been three years since that moment. And now Ahab decides that three years is probably perhaps much too long to be friends with this guy. And so he decides, let's make a war. Look at verse 2. And it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said unto his servants, Know ye not that, or excuse me, know ye that Ramoth and Gilead is ours, and we be still, and take it not out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said unto Jehoshaphat, Wilt thou go with me to, the, to battle to Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the, king of Jeho- to the king of Israel, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. So you see, now Ahab has decided we need to make war with Syria. Perhaps uh, there's a little bit of history that we might be able to go into that's not recorded in the Bible. But uh, unbeknownst to uh, the scriptures, but in actual history, it's the fact that Ahab and some other guys actually have just gotten back from a war with the king of Assyria, which is Shalmaneser III. 
And uh, it's unknown who really won that war because Shalmaneser has really bad historical records. And so, <laughs> anyways, Shalmaneser was known for not uh, recording his defeats. He was just kind of wiped those out of his memory. So anyways, it's not really known who won that battle. And so it's likely that now Ahab has sort of had this power, this sort of uh, thirst for war sort of stirred up. And such is why he comes back home after this supposed conquest, after this conflict. And he says, we need to make a, we need to make a war. We need to, uh, I need to reassert my dominance here. And such is why he decides, I'm going to go to war with my old trade partner, Ben-Hadad. That guy that we were making an agreement with. Let's, let's go and make war. And so he makes war with his new friend, Jehoshaphat. He is, I would say, God bless him, a very troubled, good king of Judah. We're going to get to him next week. But just know that he is sort of a gullible king. He kind of goes along with this plan of Ahab's, even though he knows uh, something a little bit better. Because notice what he calls for. They're trying to decide whether to make war with Syria. And then uh, Jehoshaphat and Ahab have this sort of conference And even though Jehoshaphat agrees, notice what he calls for in verse 5. And Jehoshaphat said unto the king of Israel, inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord, at the word of Yahweh today. He is basically calling for an inquiry to be done to determine if this is actually in the will of God. Let's, let's consult the prophets, let's consult the scriptures, let's go to God's word, and let's, let's see if this really be his will. Let's see if this really be his plan. Ahab obliges, he brings 400 prophets to bring him a word. Verse 6, and the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said unto them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead? To battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for the king, or excuse me, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. So Ahab is getting the words he wants to hear. He's getting exactly the message from these prophets that he wanted. Go up into battle, and you will get the victory. But Jehoshaphat isn't so convinced. Look at verse 7, and it says, He says, he asks, is there not a prophet of the Lord besides that we might inquire of him? You have this fascinating little scene here. You have 400 prophets who note they are prophesying in the name of the Lord. They say, go up for the Lord shall deliver it. But Jehoshaphat notices that something's off. This doesn't really jive. Do you have a true prophet of Yahweh that can give us a word from Yahweh himself? We need a true prophet. These guys are saying good things, but they're not really speaking in the name of Jehovah. He notices something is different about them. And I think that these are perhaps the last words that Ahab wants to hear. Notice, in the king of Israel, verse 8, said unto Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man. He basically says, I know a guy. But I don't really like him. He says, Micaiah, the son of Imla, whom, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. We can go to him. But notice he says, but I hate him. <laughs> For he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. So basically he says, there's a guy I know. He is practicing the way of Yahweh, but I don't like him. I actually hate him. And it's not because he's annoying. Well, he is annoying because you know why? He's always preaching bad things about me. 
This is Ahab's reasoning. This is Ahab's reason why he doesn't like this guy, why he doesn't want to call him. He's always prophesying evil. He's always a buzzkill on what I want to accomplish. And so Jehoshaphat says, well, let's just see what he has to say. So he dispatches a messenger in verse 9. The king of Israel called an officer and said, hasten hither Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And meanwhile, Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they sit down. They get in their best, their finest, fanciest robes. And they keep hearing these prophets come forward. Notice, and the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, sat on each on his throne, having put on their robes in a void place in the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets prophesied before them. So they're hearing these words. They're trying to determine if this battle that they're trying to stir up, that they're trying to draw up between them and Syria is actually in the Lord's will. And out of this mass of prophets, you have one guy, the only other besides Micaiah who is named, this guy named Zedekiah, he comes forward. Notice what he does. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenanah, Made him horns of iron. And he said thus saith the Lord. With these shalt thou push the Syrians. Until thou have consumed them. So out of all the other prophets. Zedekiah. He wants to really make a statement. He wants to really make a mark. On this particular moment. He wants to make sure. That as people go forward. They remember that was Zedekiah's prophecy. And why? It's because he. I imagine. And this isn't in there. But I imagine where it says made. It literally means produces. He pulls these horns out of iron. These ox horns. That are made out of iron. Out of his robes. Out of his sleeves. And he says, he uses them as object lessons. He says, with these, you will be as a mighty warrior pushing back the, uh, your enemies, the Syrians, until you have consumed them. Until you've totally wasted them. You can imagine that this really excites Ahab. Not only does it have these awesome object lessons, but it has the idea that this victory is total and sweeping. Also, too, it has sort of the right blend, so to speak, of this myth and, and showiness. These horns, it might be a reference. You can turn there if you don't have to, but you can mark it down. It might be a reference to Deuteronomy thirty-three seventeen, where there's also this last word that was given to the tribes of Joseph about horns of oxen. So it has this ring of spirituality. It has this ring of Old Testament orthodoxy and truth that you, Ahab, you and your forces will go before them and consume your enemies. It's, a, it's quite a show. And all it does is leave the other prophets just to nod and agree. Sure, yep, that's true. Look at verse 12. And all the prophets prophesied, so saying, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the king's hand. So you have this scene you have Ahab getting exactly what he wanted. He wants a war. And he's being given exactly the answer that he wants. And Jehoshaphat's questioning, his doubtings, are now uh, sort of laid to rest here by Zedekiah. And his, quote, prophesying in the name of Jehovah by referencing an Old Testament passage. So they're making up plans for war. And meanwhile, this messenger finally finds Micaiah. Look at verse 13. He brings him news of what's been going down while uh, uh, back in Samaria between the kings. Notice verse 13. And the messenger that was gone to call Micaiah spoke unto him saying, Behold now, 
The words of the prophets declare good unto the king with one mouth. Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them and speak that which is good. Basically, he says to him, make sure you fall in line this time. Make sure, here's what everyone else is saying. They're saying that this is a good thing that the king is pursuing. That the king is going forward with this war. Whatever he wants to do, it's a good thing. Just fall in line. Just, just say what everyone else is saying. <laughs> I love Micaiah's response. It's so awesome. Listen to what he says, verse 14. Micaiah said, as the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Basically, yeah, I don't care what they're saying. <laughs> Doesn't matter to me. I'm going to speak Jehovah's words. I'm going to speak Yahweh's words. I am Yahweh's prophet. I'm going to stand as Yahweh's voice. And it doesn't matter to me what everyone else is saying. All their rhetoric, all their sentiments, all their happy, clappy, good prophesying towards the king. Doesn't matter. I'm going to preach God's words. Is Micaiah's sentiment. Which I imagine this messenger... Because you can kind of glean from the context in various places that this has happened before. That this is a a thing that's happened over and over again with Micaiah. He has this reputation. Imagine the messenger's kind of brushing his forehead. (sighs) Here we go again. He knows what's about to happen. Because he goes forward to the king. Look at verse 15. So he came to the king, and the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we forbear? And notice what Micaiah does. And he answered him, Go and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. Now wait a minute. What happened to that gusto of Micaiah who says, It doesn't matter what I'm going to speak. I'm going to speak Yahweh's words. Here he is. He's repeating the same exact prophecy that was given by those other prophets. Back in verse 6. Back in verse 12. It's the same thing that that mass of guys that have been preaching to Ahab. What's, What's he doing? Well, I think really from the context that he's doing this somewhat ironically. He's going before Ahab knowing their perhaps backstory, knowing their history, saying it doesn't matter what I say to you right now. You're going to do whatever you want anyways. (laughs) He's giving him sort of a sarcastic prophecy. Go up, do whatever you want. You're going to do it anyways. And notice what Ahab does. Verse 16. And the king said unto him, How many times shall I adjure thee that thou tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? How many times do I have to tell you, speak on behalf of Yahweh? (laughs) Give me the truth. Give it to me straight. It's fascinating that Ahab wants to do what he wants to do. But he also wants to know the truth, even if he doesn't always abide by it. (laughs) So you have here this prophet Who has a word that perhaps he doesn't want to give. Because he knows it won't be heeded. He knows it won't be listened to. And yet he's sort of cajoled into giving it anyways. And notice that's what he does. Verse 17. And he said. I saw Israel scattered upon the hills. As sheep that have not a shepherd. And the Lord said. These Have no master. Let them return every man to his house in peace. This is his true word. This is his true sermon. A sermon that blasts all of the hope and the the happiness and and the prophesying good that has happened in that hall. Comes Micaiah's words where he says, it's going to end bad. (laughs) 
This plan that you have is going to leave Israel as sheep that are scattered on the hills with no shepherd. It's going to throw you into chaos. It's a very opposite sermon. And really you can sense the fact that all those previous sermons from those prophets with nothing but a bunch of brown nosing trying to appeal to the king. And here Micaiah stands, this is the Yahweh, this is the word of Yahweh. This will not end well for you. And I think this is sort of the byproduct. This is the byproduct of, of, of a nation, we could say, but also of people who have totally rejected the true shepherd and his word of truth. And instead opted for the chaos of their own wisdom. It's going to throw them into chaos. They've asked for it by not submitting themselves to the wisdom of Yahweh. They've instead clung to their own wisdom and it's now thrusting them into chaos. And such is Micaiah's word. And as you might imagine, Ahab doesn't like it, not one bit. Verse 18, And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell thee that he would prophesy no good concerning me but evil? I told you so. Look, what, look at what he's preaching. <laughs> I told you he would do that. Why did we even get this guy? We're not validating his parking. <laughs> So he's frustrated at this message. And then while they're trying to compose themselves, what does Micaiah do? He speaks up. And he reinforces his sermon with a really fascinating vision. Watch. And he, Micaiah, said, Hear thou therefore the word of Yahweh. I saw the Lord. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne. And all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said on this manner and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him, and prevail also. Go forth, and do so. Now therefore, behold, Yahweh hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee. Hmm. These verses, I'll have you know, have given me no small amount of pause this past week. I've tried to wrap my head around exactly what's going on. And there's some things that we'll get to that provide more context here. But just in this particular moment, there's a lot that we might have questions about. You have here this throne room. Micaiah says he's seen inside heaven's throne room. And he's seen Yahweh sitting on a throne. It's a very striking image. It's one that's repeated throughout the Bible. We could go through several places where we see Yahweh sitting on a throne. But what's so surprising in this particular section is that we almost hear Yahweh calling for one of heaven's hosts to literally seduce Ahab into going into war. That's what that word persuade means. You see it in verses 20, 21, and 22, that word persuade. It literally means entice or seduce. How can we get Ahab to go to this place where he will meet his judgment? That God would summon 
an enticing spirit to work a deceptive scheme and seems entirely contrary to what we know about God. We know from scripture that he cannot lie. We know from scripture, James 1, that he never tempts any man. So what do we, what do we make of this? What are, what are we supposed to do with this particular scene? Well, it's a couple things. I, I, one thing, it shouldn't be that alarming, this particular moment, um, that God would grant sort of this lie to go forth and tell lies because it's happened before. It, this scene reminds me of Job 1 and 2. Remember at the beginning of Job, right? So you have that scene in the heavens that Job is unaware of where Satan comes forth to God and says, let me go and test your servant Job. And literally, God gives Satan permission. He gives him the sanction and the authority to do as he will, except to a certain point, remember? He gives him a limit on what, uh, on what he can do and inflict upon Satan. And he says, you can't go any further than that. He does it twice. There's a, a wonderful, I think, comfort in the fact that God is able to limit even Satan's might. Even Satan has to ask permission to do what he will. And even God has authority from his throne. I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's okay. He has authority from his throne to limit the havoc that evil is able to inflict. So there's that that's going on, I think. But also, too, go with me to 2 Thessalonians really quick. Just I want you to see this verse and especially how it relates to this particular scene. This idea that a lying spirit is going forth to work deception is, to me, reminiscent of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And look at verse 11. We have here sort of, uh, sort of a, a, the Apostle Paul is, is sort of working out what will happen during the, the, quote, end times. Well, let me just go back to verse 11, or excuse me, verse 9. Well, no, let's go back to verse 8. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 2 verse 8. And then shall that wicked be revealed. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. And shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan. With all power and signs and and lying wonders. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Because they received not the love of the truth. That they might be saved. And for this cause. Notice this. God shall send them a strong delusion. That they should believe a lie. That they all might be damned who believed not the truth. But had pleasure in unrighteousness. We have here another time in which we see that there's going to come a delusion. Which is going to deceive men. Which I would say deceive men who are already deceived. You notice that it was... They were already deceived and so God sends them a strong delusion to sort of give them what they want. I think that's exactly what's happening here. You know, we could spend a lot of time trying to identify and put a name to this lying spirit. Is it so and so? Is it that old adversary, the devil, who comes before and says, I will be a lying spirit? Maybe. Either way. You have here God sanctioning, giving permission to evil to go forth. Because his his servant Ahab, the king of his chosen people, has already been deceived. I think this is the historian's point. 
You go back a couple chapters. You, go, you read, quote, the saga of Ahab. And what do you see? Time after time after time again. Ahab is his own authority. He has never once yielded to Yahweh. We have that small moment at the end of the last chapter where he repented of the wickedness that he, that he did unto Naboth. Other than that, he's done nothing to follow Yahweh's truth. He's done nothing to follow God's word. Yahweh is irrelevant to him. He has nothing to do with Yahweh and his truth. He is already a deceived man. Ahab is. He's already been duped by his own pride, by his own self-aggrandizing nature. That I am the authority. I can make laws. I can make rules. I can take whatever I want. I can make wars. He's his own king. And so nothing was going to stop Ahab from doing what he wanted to do. Not Micaiah. And even in this particular passage we can say, not even Yahweh himself. Because Yahweh is in front of him through Micaiah. Speaking through him. Micaiah is literally telling him. Those guys are lying. They are not telling you the truth. They have been given a word to deceive you. Because you are already deceived. And what what does Ahab do? Look at verse um, 25. Or no, 26. And the king of Israel said, and said, Take Micaiah and carry him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And thus, say, thus saith the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him with the bread of affliction and with the water of affliction until I come in peace. He ignores it. Once again, you have Yahweh's voice in front of him. And he ignores it. He has the the truth revealed. These guys are lying and he ignores it. See, this is the point of Micaiah's vision, I think. It was to bear witness to the fact that Ahab was sort of beyond the point of listening to Israel's one true God. He had not listened. He had not heeded to Yahweh before and he wouldn't now either. I think this is sort of the, uh, ex- an example of what Paul talks about in Romans 1. Go with me to Romans 1 really quick. I know I'm taking you to some places. And we'll get to the really cool part of the story in a minute. But I want you to see what's going on. Notice Romans 1 verse 28. This is that really harsh portion of Romans. Where Paul is, is trying to lay waste to everyone's thoughts that they are good people. <laughs> Notice what he says in verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And notice verse 32, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. They are pleasuring in the things that God has reserved for judgment. You have such the same happening with Ahab. He has been given over to the reprobate mind that he has so sort of cloistered himself in. He has said, I will not have Yahweh. So Yahweh says, okay, have your own way. Have your your own wisdom rule the day. 
I think this is God's severest form of punishment and judgment. Giving us exactly what we want. Here he says to Ahab. You're deceived by your own grandeur. By your own ability to rule. By your own sovereignty. Here, try it out. And he rejects Yahweh's words. Notice Zedekiah back in 1 Kings 22. Micaiah has just finished this prophecy. Just finished this vision saying, you're going to fall. These people are lying to you. Do not listen to them. Zedekiah stands up, the son of Chenanana, and says, went near and smote Micaiah on the cheek. And said, which way went the spirit of the Lord from me to speak unto thee? Remember Zedekiah has made that really fancy show. Now, after hearing Micaiah's words, he gives him a nice uh, sort of right hook. To his jaw. He says, where did God's spirit go after it left me? He's sort of saying, I was prophesying in Yahweh. And Micaiah says, verse 25. Behold, thou shalt see in that day. When thou shalt go into an inner chamber to hide thyself. You're going to see one day. Notice, Micaiah doesn't strike back. What does he say? We'll see in the end who's true. And notice the same words he says to Ahab. Notice verse 28. And Micaiah said, If thou return all at all in peace, the Lord hath not spoken by me. And he said, Hearken, O people, every one of you. Basically, he says to everyone in that room, We're going to see one day who's true. We're going to see who's really speaking in the name of Yahweh. You guys, in with your horns and everything... Or me, the prophet of Jehovah, Micaiah. So he throws him in prison. And then Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they make for war. They decide, yep, this is in our best interest. We're going to go make war against Syria. But I love, I love, (laughs) notice, uh, notice Ahab. Because for however much, again, he's made this really grandstanding show that he doesn't like Yahweh. He doesn't want to listen to him. He doesn't like anything that tends towards him. He doesn't like Micaiah because he's always prophesying negatively. And yet, despite all of that, I imagine in the back of his mind he has, man, there's something about what Micaiah said. Because notice verse uh, 29. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said in Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and enter into the battle. But thou, put thou on thy robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. So he's going into war as a regular Joe, as a regular guy on the front lines of Israelite's army. And he has, you know, Jehoshaphat, you dress up as the king. <laughs> You stand out. You get in your best garb and I'll act like a normal guy. Because we all know that in the battle, what do you do? You target the commander. You target the main guy and all of his soldiers spread. They scatter. You have this really cowardly act by Ahab. I'm just going to get amongst the guys. But you, Jehoshaphat, you should get on your horse and on your best robes. And he does that, again, because Jehoshaphat is a little gullible. And we have here the reason why, verse 31, but the king of Syria commanded his 30 and two captains that rule over his chariots saying, fight neither with small nor great, save only with the king of Israel. He has a target on Ahab. I don't care if you kill anyone else. Get Ahab. Get that guy down. That's Ben-Hadab's directive to his men. 
Perhaps he's a little flustered that their trade agreement has been uh, rendered null and void. But anyways, those are the stakes for this battle. And here it goes. It doesn't go as Ahab plans. Notice verse 32. And it came to pass when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, that they said, Surely is the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And it came to pass when the captains of the chariots perceived that it was not the king of Israel. That they turned back from pursuing him. So you can see that Jehoshaphat is not in Ben-Hadad's mind. It doesn't matter if we get him. They actually, he calls off his men. Don't worry about him. And it appears as if Ahab is going to escape scot-free off of this battlefield. He's going to get away with it. He's disguised himself. They've got Jehoshaphat, the chaos of war. And notice verse 34, one of my favorite verse now, after studying it for so long, this is one of my favorite verses ever. And a certain man drew a bow at a venture, aimlessly, basically, and smote the king of Israel, Ahab, between the joints of the harness. Wherefore he said unto the driver of his chariot, Turn thy hand and carry me out of the host, for I am wounded. I put that verse up against any verse in the Bible to evidence the fact and the meaning and the extent of God's control over our world. He is so in control that, yes, even he, even a random arrow loosed in the heat of battle by a no-name archer can find the smallest crevice in between Ahab's planks of armor and the joints of the harness of his breastplate and strike him dead. A king reserved for judgment is felled on the field of battle precisely as God has said. Because he's in control. As Pastor Nathan read, Ahab falls. He falls in this chariot. He bleeds out. And we have that scene of the dogs licking up his blood in verse 38. Exactly as Elijah had predicted in the previous chapter. You have all of this coming forth to show that Yahweh's word is always true. And in fact, I, maybe, maybe this will make you frustrated, but I could have ended the sermon in four words. God is in control. That's what this passage shows me, at least. It shows me that everything is being permeated by the control of the sovereign king of all things, Yahweh himself. All times, all things, all places, all peoples, everything is under his control. The prophetic and the erratic and everything in between. And what does that mean for us? It means two things. I'm going to go through these fast, I I hope, I promise. (laughs) We have this amazing, elaborate text which shows us that God's in control. But what does that mean for us in 2021? I think it means this, that if God is in control, then we can live with this, a holy indifference to conventional wisdom. Notice notice verse 14 again. Remember, Micaiah was approached by the, by the messenger. Speak as everyone else speaks. Speak as, as, as everyone else has been giving in their rhetoric. And what does he say? I'm going to speak what God wants me to speak. 
He's, he, he sort of has this unbelievable dismissiveness of what everyone else is saying as opposed to the truth of God's word. To me, it's unbelievably inspiring, these words of Micaiah. Because, I won't say we, because maybe you do, but I'll just say I, because I know I do. I often act or don't act out of a concern of what they might say. Maybe you can think of a moment where you've done that. You've been worried about how they're going to view you, what they're going to think about you, what are they going to say about you. you know, I can't say that. Micaiah paid no attention to the sentiments of his peers, fellow prophets. Because the word of Yahweh was that important. Is God's word that important to you this morning? You don't have to answer. Don't raise your hand. Just ask yourself. Ask yourself. Is God's word that important that it doesn't really matter what everyone else is saying? Me, I think I look at the state of our country, at the state of the church of God, and say we are desperate for some preachers and churchgoers to exhibit this same devotion to God's word. It doesn't matter what everyone else is saying. It doesn't matter what popular opinion says. It doesn't matter this pressure to conform to what's convenient or to what's politically correct or all those sorts of things. You can't say that now. That's too offensive. You can't say those sorts of things. God's word is true and is the thing that we stand on. It is the rock that we have our feet planted on. Micaiah says that right here. It doesn't matter what anyone else is going to say. It doesn't matter what anyone else is going to think of me. Yahweh's word is true. My friends, God's word doesn't operate on a sliding scale of what's socially acceptable. His word is true, always. David in the psalm said, it is settled, it is fixed in heaven. That's how true it is. That's how sure it is. I can tell you that the truth of God's word likely won't jive with the popular rhetoric of today. But you know what? It's still even true. It's the words of Yahweh himself given to us to stabilize us. To settle us. To know that this is true. Such is why Micaiah here is, is okay with going thrown into prison. Because he knew that God's word was true. My friends. I pray this morning that the spirit can inspire that kind of faith in all of us. That we can stake everything upon the truth of God's word alone. Regardless of what, what we hear on, uh, on the news or on the media or wherever you're getting other forms, other places of truth that's harder and harder to find. Stake everything upon God's truth. If God is in control, then we can live with a holy indifference to conventional wisdom. But number two, if God is in control, then we can stop fretting over the current volume of evil. And this to me is one that speaks really close to my heart, my mind, and my soul. Because maybe you don't think this, but I'll just, I'll just confess it. At times, it can feel like evil is so strong and powerful because it's so loud. 
When you say that the voice of evil is often louder, out-voluming the voice of wisdom and truth. It can feel like that. It can make make us believe that evil is winning. They're so loud. How can they not have so much support? How can evil not be actually ruling the day? And I'll say from this passage and from the bulk of scripture, it doesn't matter how vocal evil gets. God has not lost an ounce of control over his universe. Not at one time. Not at one moment. Not ever. You know, even if all of the highest authorities of our day assemble, you could have any, any assembly of, quote, the most powerful people in the world. They assemble, guess what? They're still making decisions from man-made thrones. They're still making decrees that are made up out of their own heads. And there's still a higher throne that's above them all. Verse 19 ought to be so encouraging and inspiring to us. What does Micaiah see in the heat of the chaos in the midst of Israel and Judah happening to come back together now. But now making another war. What does he see? God on his throne. It's an image which ought to speak to our souls because of the image that still rules our day. He is sitting in majesty and might and authority, ruling over everything. And yes, even evil has to ask permission to do its will. He's powerful even over that. There's an author, his name is Christopher Ash. And I like this phrase because he says that he has evil on a leash. <laughs> And I love that image. I love that image that even the things of darkness and wickedness, God has on a leash. And he at any time will make sure that it don't go beyond what his will is. If you want scripture for this, Psalm 76 is an amazing verse. Psalm 76 verse 10. I'll just read it. You can note it down. Jot it for for later. Psalm 76.10. Notice what the psalmist says about this Yahweh who's on his throne. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. And the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. So the wrath that man works is going to be used to the praise and glory of Yahweh. All things work out together for good. And even the wrath that doesn't abide by his will, he has the authority to restrain. Because it's on a leash. Because he's in control. That might seem like the most elementary of statements. God's in control. We say it all the time. At least I know I do. It's okay. God's in control. Doesn't matter. God's in control. But do you realize how true that statement is? Do you realize how permeating his control is? He has control over evil. In the throne room of heaven, he is sanctioning what goes forth. And he even has control over the flight of an arrow in the midst of battle to make sure that it hits its target. That's how in control he is. I don't know about you. I find so much relief in this passage. 
I find so much comfort in the fact that this God who's on his throne is not just sitting on it, just idly by, watching things as they wind down. God is not a deist. He doesn't just wind up the world and watch it spin into chaos. He is involved with where we are and what we're going through and what we're enduring. He's a king who is involved. He's not twiddling his thumbs. He's exercising authority and control even this very moment. My friends, how does that speak to you? That even now we can uh, stop fretting over the volume of evil because God is on his throne. I have to tell you, the volume of evil likely will increase. Maybe it's going to get louder. I imagine that it will. It feels like it has. The, pe- the things that, that people are deciding upon. And they're saying, this is good. How? It can surprise you. Although it shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't be surprised by depraved man acting in his depravity. What it should do is make us pray and pine. Even so come Lord Jesus. My friends... Stay true. Stick to God's word. It's the only true word. And yes, even if evil seemingly gets louder. If darkness seems to encroach upon the light. My friends, there is God. And he is enthroned. And he is in control. That's... I just, I just have to confess that it's been one of the things that I've had to remind myself so often over the last couple months, year. I have to say, it wasn't in my intention to become your pastor and then have a year of that pastorate being totally thrown into confusion by a global pandemic. They don't teach you how to deal with that in Bible school. They don't have a class. Pandemic 101, here's how to do church. <laughs> Whereas not a, a few nights, a lot of nights. I didn't know what was true. What was right. How was I going to shepherd this church that God had given me? The only message that has ever made sense to me. Is God is in control. Amen. My friends, it's the only message that will make sense In the days ahead too. Who knows what this country is going into. You can read so many people. And they'll say we're going into this direction. We're going into socialism. Whatever. They could be right. They could be wrong. Who knows. God is in control over this moment. Me that gives me relief. So I can hear the bad news. I could hear how wicked man has gotten and depraved and acting in his deception and in his depravity. And I could hear God is in control and the good news so far outweighs the bad. And I can know and I can see by faith God sitting on his throne. 
My friends, this, I think, is the message we need as a church, as Christians, as believers, as citizens of the United States of America. That there's a higher throne. And sitting on it is the active, involved, and I would say even concerned Lord of all things. He's concerned for you. He's concerned for this church. He's concerned for this nation. And my friends, his word is given to us to show us that. You want to know how concerned he is for your soul? He sent his son to die for it. I know I've, I've gone long. I told you I was excited about this chapter, so maybe you'll forgive me. It's, there's, I think, a couple simple messages from the Bible that we could preach. One of them is, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. If you stop and think about that, that's one of the most profound sermons ever spoken. And I would say also number two, and maybe 1A right behind it is, God is in control over all things because he is sitting on the throne. That's the message. This is our king, my friends. May you be blessed. May you have peace. May you find the settledness of trusting God's truth and believing that he is on the throne. If you don't know that this morning, I pray. This king is standing for you. He stood in your place on the cross and he's standing on, uh, he's standing in heaven concerned for your soul even now. Your king and your savior and your Lord. Let us pray.